Good morning. Today we're going to continue in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to those to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are thankful for your presence here, because at our most fundamental part of our being, we know that we need you. We need not only your forgiveness and your grace, Father, but we need your spirit to enlighten us, your spirit to illumine the scriptures to us, your spirit to open our eyes to what you would have us to hear this morning. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would come and would change our hearts and our lives as we encounter you and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This week in, uh, in, in the newsletter that we send out each Thursday... I shared with you an illustration that I, I think I've probably uh, shared here before, and it was about an article that I read, I think it was probably last year, 
that uh, said uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary was adding new words. Apparently, they add new words to the dictionary every uh, year, and this year they chose to add the word hashtag to the dictionary. Now, I'm not really sure what hashtag really means. I kind of think I understand it, but I'm not really sure what it means. But if you look it up in the dictionary, it says it began to be used really in, in 2008. So what that means is that there is a large part of the population of our country that have no idea what the word hashtag means. Entire generations that have no clue what this word means or how to use it at all. And if you really think about it, there's probably people groups all throughout the world that don't really know what hashtag means either because the phrase, at least at this point, is largely culturally bound. It's bound by a certain demographic in a certain culture. So what I did is I decided to research what this word hashtag meant. And I did what we all do when we research something. We get into our search engine and we type in what is hashtag. And I tried to learn what it means and I still am not exactly sure what it means. But what I do know is you sometimes put phrases and add a hashtag in order to get something to trend. And I'm not exactly sure what trending means either, but what I think it means is that it is an opportunity to take a word or an idea and make it spread beyond you, to make it spread into something that is bigger than just you as an individual, something that spreads to others and ultimately becomes a movement. Well, the book of Acts provides for us the movement of God. It tells us about the first step that Je- the first steps that Jesus' followers took after Jesus returned back into heaven. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was God who took on skin. He came to this earth. He ministered for three years. He was eventually arrested, executed, and rose from the dead on the third day. And after 40 days of appearing to his followers, he, d- he ascended back into heaven. And the book of Acts tells us what happens after that. But it not only just tells us about the first steps, but it tells us how those first steps became an incredible movement of God in the first century world in which his people spread out in mission to the very ends of the earth. We've been looking at this book of Acts, but up to this point, the, the movement of God has been largely culturally bound It has all really happened for the first six chapters in the book of Acts. It's all really happened in one city with one particular people group, the Jews. But now we begin to see that it's expanding. It's growing. It's moving outside of the cultural bounds with which it was in. And we begin to see that this movement of Jesus is not just about one city and one people group. But we begin to see that it transcends all cultural bounds with the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. You see, God intended for it to be that from the beginning. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he gives his people a mission. And he says, spread this good news via the power of the Holy Spirit, but spread it in Jerusalem, and then spread it in Judea and Samaria, which were the surrounding cities. And then he says, spread it to the very ends of the earth. Spread it to as far as you can travel and as far as you can go. But in the first six chapters, we only see that it stays 
It only stays in one city. Jesus' followers are, are slow to take the message beyond their own culture. And we understand that. We understand how sometimes it's difficult to spread out of ways that are very comfortable, comfortable to us. So Jesus' first followers were quite comfortable to only share the gospel in their immediate context. So God had to shake it up. And God shakes it up by sending persecution their way. In Acts chapter 6, it tells us that seven men were chosen for a very specific task. They were chosen to care for a certain group of widows that had been largely neglected in the church to that point. And the scriptures are very careful to mention two men in particular. One was Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, you, we've read the story about how Stephen proclaimed that gospel message and it angered the religious elite of their day so much so that they end up stoning Stephen to death. Because of that, because of that persecution, the Christians in Jerusalem realized they couldn't stay there anymore or they too, like Stephen, would be executed. So God was moving them out. He was moving them out of their cultural boundaries. He was moving them out of their cultural movement to begin to take the gospel ultimately to the very ends of the earth. And Acts chapter 8 begins to tell us about another one of those men named Philip who carried the gospel message to the next city over, the city that's called Samaria. Now this was probably hard for him because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jews considered them to be half-breeds. There had been thousands of years of history in which the Jews hated the Samaritans. Yet because of this persecution... Philip was forced to move into the area of Samaria and begin preaching the gospel. It wasn't the first they'd heard about Jesus. If you look at the gospel, you'll note that Jesus very intentionally went to the region of Samaria. He made a special effort to go to Samaria. John chapter 4 tells us a story about which Jesus entered into Samaria and had a long conversation with a woman uh, at, at a well. And they talked about the nature of life and the nature of faith and what that meant. And at the very end of that conversation, the woman was so amazed by what she heard about Jesus that the scriptures tell us she ran back into the town, found everyone she knew and everybody who would listen and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And of course, many people came and met Jesus and found life in that moment. And now perhaps one, maybe even two years later, Philip is now returning to this region of Samaria to begin to talk about the gospel once again. Our passage says in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip and when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For when unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. And then the passage tells us about a certain man that Philip encountered while he was there, a man called Simon the Magician. This was a unique uh, situation for Philip. This was a new area and this was a new situation that the gospel had to contend with. And as we look at this narrative and, and, and Philip's interaction with Simon the magician, 
We learn a few profound things about the nature of what faith in Jesus Christ is really all about. And the first thing we see from this narrative about the nature of faith is that not all who profess faith in Christ have really and truly experienced him in their hearts and in their lives. You know, as a culture, we like to talk. Americans, we like to talk a lot. And we like to pretend that we are experts on a lot of things. We go around and posture ourselves this way, but often the reality is very different. Many people still uh, proclaim that uh, the U.S. is a Christian nation, and the reason they proclaim that is that still roughly 80% of Americans claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. But we all know that reality probably isn't that, uh, isn't that real, because many people that we rub shoulders with may or may not profess Jesus Christ, but they haven't at the same time experienced him. He hasn't changed their hearts and in, a, in their lives. And of course, Matthew 13 tells us about a parable about a parable that we read for our kids' story about what it truly means to follow Jesus. And it gives us an illustration about a farmer who goes out and casts seeds uh, all over the place. Some seed falls on the ground, but it's ultimately devoured by birds. Some, feed, some seed falls on rocky ground and it immediately springs up into a plant. But because there's no depth in the soil, it dies away. Some seed falls among thorns, but those thorns end up choking the life out of the seed. Yet some seed falls on good soil. And because of that, it brings great light. And the point that Jesus was trying to communicate with this parable is that people respond to this gospel message in very different and often very unique ways. Some people, when they hear the gospel, just outright reject it. They know it's not for them, so they just outright walk away. Others may profess faith, yet somehow they miss out on the faith in its truest essence. This is the person who the parable tells us hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself. He endures for a little while, and then when tribulation and persecution arises on the account of the word, he immediately falls away. But we also see that others hear the words of faith. They hear the words of the gospel, they accept those words, and their lives are transformed by it. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. People respond to the gospel in all sorts of different ways. You see, in Jerusalem, when Jesus' followers were proclaiming the gospel, they encountered the religious Pharisees, those that were considered to be the religious experts. They had all the outward appearances of having accepted the faith. But what we've seen is they, not, they didn't really experience the essence of what that faith really meant. But in Samaria, Philip encounters a different man. A man who seems to receive the message. A man who professes faith in the message but as the story goes on, we begin to realize that he really doesn't truly understand the heart of what this message says. I don't know if you saw this in the news this week, but 
Uh, This week, the mayor of Kansas City uh, started paying attention to what was going on in his city and in his baseball team. And he realized that the street that he lived on was called Baltimore Avenue. And he realized, I can't I can't live on Baltimore Avenue. I've got to show solidarity with our baseball team. So he made a decree in the city that renamed Baltimore Avenue Royal Way. Now, our mayor uh, was not to be undone by this. So she gathered a couple of uh, Baltimore City Councilmen and they had uh, a ceremony to rename Mount Royal Avenue Now it is called Oriole Way, all right? Couldn't be outdone by the the mayor of Kansas City. Now what's interesting is we all read that story and we laugh about it and we love about it and we get our city pride going on. But the truth is, in about a week's time, uh, Baltimore Avenue in Kansas City will go back to being called Baltimore Avenue in Kansas City. And in Baltimore, Oriole Way will go back to being called Mount Royal Avenue. Why? Because those are changes that are in some ways ceremonial or fun, but the changes will not last. And often we see that when it comes to the gospel and how people respond to it. And we see that in the story of Simon that is here. Our passage tells us that Simon was one who had practiced magic in the city in such a way that he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. You see, in this Samaritan city, Simon was considered to be a God figure. Some people called him a magician. Other people's called him a sorcerer. And we, we don't really know what that means or what that looked like in the context But what it does mean is that the Samaritans were so amazed by him that they actually worshipped him. He had the luxury of posturing himself as someone who had the very power of God in the flesh. And they worshipped him as if he was a deity. Now all of a sudden, Philip comes to town and Philip starts wielding the actual power of God in the city of Samaria. It says he began preaching the message of the gospel and it was attended with all sorts of signs and wonders. So the power of God was not only being manifest in the message, but also in the things that were happening. People who were sick were being healed. People who were lame had the ability to walk and the whole city was abuzz over the message of the gospel and what was happening. It was so substantial that actually in verse 13, it says that even Simon, even Simon, this magician or this sorcerer, believed and was baptized because he was so amazed by the things that Philip was doing. But as our story continues on, as the narrative plays out, it becomes clear about Simon that he truly didn't understand the heart of what faith in Jesus was all about. So what was it that he missed? What was the missing component that made Simon's faith counterfeit faith instead of real faith? He missed the true essence of what faith is. And he missed that truly experiencing Christ, 
means that we are no longer living for ourselves, but instead we are living for Christ. You see, Peter and John arrive. They hear about what's happened in Samaria. So they leave Jerusalem and they go to Samaria to see what has happened. And they begin, they themselves begin to demonstrate this remarkable power of the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Samaritans. And and Simon, this magician, is once again amazed. So he goes to Peter and John and he says to them, is there any way I could buy this power from you? Is there any way I could raise the money or, or raise the funds to be able to buy this power of the Spirit that I am witnessing in you? I want it for myself, so is there any way that I can buy it? And Peter's response is one of anger. He sharply rebukes Simon for what he asked. Now, an initial read might make us feel sympathetic for Simon. Maybe he's a new believer in Jesus, and he's just asking an inappropriate or naive question. But what Simon's question does is it actually truly reveals his heart. It truly reveals it in a way that helps us to see that he really didn't understand the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the end, he wasn't truly looking to repent and change with his life. You see, what he was doing is he was looking to Jesus not to change his life, but he was looking to Jesus in order to add to his own personal glory. You see, he wanted, to, he wanted all the fringe benefits that came from being a follower of Jesus, but he didn't truly and really want to follow Jesus with his life. He wanted all the power of God, not just for the sake of the relationship with him, but he wanted the power to further his own reputation and to further his own glories. And what it reminds us is that many people back in in Jesus's day, back in the, the days of Acts, and also in our day as well, many people are enticed by the benefits that come from faith in Jesus Christ. They witness what we have here as a community of believers and they desire that for themselves. They're enticed by what they perceive as a get out of hell for free card. They are enticed by a sense of morality that might be able to define their life or a sense of morality they might be able to raise their kids in. You see, what they want is all the benefits that come from a relationship with Jesus without actually following him with their lives. You know, when Jesus was around, he used to garner large crowds. When he was, would move into town, it, there would be narratives and stories about how thousands of people would gather around all to hear Jesus. They would gather around to see the miracles that he would perform. And at times, there were thousands of people surrounding him, fascinated, wondering what he would do next. But but then the Gospels tell us something interesting. They tell us that as the crowds grew, Jesus would begin to teach very hard things. And as he taught those hard things, one by one, everyone in those crowds left. Why did they leave? They left probably because they were there for the show. They were there to see what was happening. They were there to see the benefits of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
The most profound story is found in in John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Most people believe that it actually was more than just 5,000 people. It was probably more like 10,000 people. And Jesus miraculously feeds them this meal of fish and and, and, and loaves of bread. And the people are amazed. But then it says that Jesus then begins to teach them. And one by one, with what Jesus begins to say to them, they all leave. Thousands, droves start to depart after Jesus begins teaching. And then all of a sudden, at one point, Jesus looks up and the only people that are left are his 12 followers. Thousands of people had walked away. So Jesus looks at his 12 followers and he says this, do you all want to go as well? And John tells us, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. See, what it does is it reminds us that many people are fascinated with Jesus. But then when they learn what it really means to follow him, they wash their hands and walk away. When they learn what, that, that, what, what, really, what it really means to follow Jesus with their lives, when they learn that it really means no longer living for themselves and instead living for him, when they learn that it means no longer worshiping and trusting in themselves, but instead trusting in him, it becomes too much for them and they end up walking away. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, the truth is many people want the benefits of following Jesus, but few are really willing to follow them with their lives. It's much easier in their mind to be their own gods. It's much easier to be their own Lord and Savior. And what it does is it always boils down to a matter of control. Many want the benefits of Jesus, but are unwilling to relinquish the actual control of their lives. But the last thing we see in this passage about the nature of following Jesus is that the byproduct of actually and truly living for him is great joy. The byproduct of actually and truly living for him is great joy. You see, we mistakenly think that living for ourselves brings the greatest joy that comes in life. But instead, we often discover, and what we find in the Gospels, is that the greatest joy doesn't come in living for ourselves, but the greatest joy comes in giving our lives away to him. It seems hard. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? The message of our world says that we need to amass everything we can, all the pleasures that we can, in order to squeeze all the joy that we can out of life, to build our own kingdoms, to amass all the pleasures that we can. But Jesus comes along and says it's actually the opposite, that great joy is only found when we give our lives away to him. You see, the Samaritans understood that. And it's why the passage says that when the gospel message came to the city of Samaria, it was a city that was full of great, great joy.
We were downtown with uh, the kids yesterday, and um, we saw a great big limousine. And our, our kids still think limousines are like the coolest thing. And uh, we saw what, what, what appeared to be a, a, a group of groomsmen that were uh, loading into the limo. And they were getting ready to uh, go to a wedding. And they were all excited and, and uh, all, the, all the things and all the excitement that comes from going to a wedding. And uh, it made me think that this really is the, se- the, the, the season for weddings. Everybody's getting married all over the place. And as I told you last week, uh, uh, last weekend I had the opportunity to uh, marry a young couple who had become uh, good friends of mine. And one of the things that I always do when I prepare a wedding with a couple is uh, I give them the option of sometimes writing their own vows. And sometimes that makes me a little nervous. I want them to kind of run it through uh, with me before. But uh, often, sometimes when they write their own vows, there are, the, the vows are some of the most beautiful vows that you've, that you've ever seen and written. But of course, some go with the traditional vows. But I'll tell you one thing that I've never heard. I've never heard a couple write vows that say something like this. I love you because of all the good things you do for me. Or I love you because of all the benefits that come to me from being in a relationship with you. Most often you hear, I commit to love you in in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer. Very rarely do you hear, or if ever do you hear a couple say... I will love you as long as the benefits still work out for me. You never hear that. And if those those wouldn't be very good vows. Why? Because people instinctively know that the health of a marriage comes not from just looking out for your own benefits. But the health of a marriage comes from recognizing you are committing your very soul for the sake of another person. It's why the scriptures so often call our relationship with God a marriage or use marital terms to describe our relationship with God. Because what God does is when he asks us to enter into a relationship with him, he doesn't ask us to vow to only enjoy the benefits that come from a relationship with him. He asks us to fully devote ourselves to him. To live our lives no longer for the sake of ourselves, but to live our lives for the sake of him. But as is so true in the gospel, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. Because what the scriptures tell us is that when he came to this earth, he vowed to love us to the end. He vowed to be devoted to us till the very end, and that vow took him to his very own death. So that when we enter into a relationship with him, we see that he's already fulfilled those vows to love us by giving of himself, of everything that he had for our sake to declare his love for us. So when it comes to following him, it's not just about the benefits. It's about devoting our lives to him, giving our very essence, giving up our control, giving up our will, giving up our entire devotion to him. 
He bids us to come and trust in him with our lives. To experience the free gift of grace that he offers to us. And in the end, to experience the greatest joy that is possible in this life. It's no surprise that often the the most joyous events that come in our experiences as human beings are weddings. Where you just see joy pictured in people's faces in in the most unbelievable ways. Well, I think God designed it that way. Why? Because the ultimate and greatest joy that comes in life is from that ultimate wedding feast. Where God expresses his devotion to us. And when we express our devotion to him. So the question that I think Acts forces us to ask ourselves is, is why are we here? Have we expressed our faith just so we can get the benefits of what it means to know him? Or have we truly expressed our devotion to him by giving over the very nature of who we are? and the control of our lives.